Well, as I said, we're in Micah chapter 2 this morning, so if you would, turn in your copies of Scripture there, Micah chapter 2. And let's hear the word of the Lord to us, his people, this morning. Micah 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our key truth this morning is this. God's judgment is mercifully designed to preserve his people. God's judgment is mercifully designed to preserve his people. It's a a long chapter. There's a lot going on. We could get into many little details, but to take a 30,000 kind of foot view of what's going on, what are the the, the bedrock foundation of what Micah chapter 2 is teaching us, I think it's this. God's judgment is mercifully designed to preserve his people. Now, as we get into this, it's, it's helpful for us to, to know, to the understanding of this passage, to remember that when the prophet Micah was delivering this message to the kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah, both places were experiencing something of an economic boom. There was money to be made, there was land to be got and, and cultivated, and the people, they went right to it. And, and because of this, there developed in both places uh, sort of a, a new wealthy class, wealthy and influential group of people, but, but, but at the same time, this new wealth was also very much under threat, especially in the northern kingdom of Israel. The, the dominant and rising Assyrian superpower was on the rise. And at times, as, especially as Micah is preaching in the last and waning days of that kingdom, uh, Assyria uh, uh, put upon that, that kingdom a, a very, at times, debilitating vassal tribute. And, but, but also in the southern kingdom of Judah, the, the economic boom was great. People were getting rich, but it was also uncertain. They didn't know it was going to last for very long. And, and so rather than use their newfound wealth and influence to do good to their neighbors, largely out of fear, 
they allowed a covetous heart to grow inside them, and they bullied and domineered their way into increasing their holdings. Fearful hearts led to covetousness, which led ultimately to injustice. And though we're separated by many thousands of years from Micah's original audience, this problem, we have to recognize, is still with us because it's fundamentally a problem of the heart. Not fundamentally a problem of circumstance, but a problem of the heart. It's a problem of coveting. So often we want to keep the discussion about these things at the level of circumstance without really taking the time to assess, where's my heart at? Is my heart at the level of generosity and the mission of the Lord, or is it just concerned with the circumstances around me? So it's a problem of coveting. Now, now coveting, we have to pause here and, and remember, coveting is, is more than simply desiring things that you don't have. It's the desire to have something at the expense of someone else, or at least without any regard to the way in which you're acquiring it might do harm to someone else, or even more fundamentally, break God's law with no regard to what God has said about it. So, so when we covet, when we set our desire, the desire of our hearts upon getting something without any regard to our neighbors, without any regard to their uh, circumstances or interests, without any regard to God's law or what God has said about it, the thing itself, and not God and certainly not other people, becomes what is all important in our minds. So, so we can covet even if we're not thinking to ourselves, well, you know, I'm going to steal from this person and, and I, I, I'm recognizing in the moment that I try to get it, it's going to do great harm to them. No, we can covet when we just fail to consider how is, the thing, how is, how is my acquiring stuff going to impact my neighbors? When we just fail, we, we're just indifferent. We fail to consider how it's going to impact those around us. That can be evidence of a covetous heart. So this, this, this problem is still with us. So, so, lest we think that what Micah chapter 2 has to teach us isn't particularly relevant to our day and age, it's helpful to ask ourselves some, some searching questions. What kinds of things are you most often tempted to covet? And because these two things often go hand in hand, what kinds of things are you most fearful of losing? And, and what might that reveal about your view of God? The, the, the people of Micah's day, they had a low view of God. They, they did. They thought he either didn't see their injustice or seeing it, that he didn't care. He certainly wasn't going to judge them for it. Perhaps even more fundamentally, they were discontent, discontent with the riches of knowing and, and experiencing the adventure of knowing God. And, and so they took matters into their own hands. The, the main thing was to steel themselves against the economic uncertainty in their time and day by getting whatever they could by whatever means that they could. And so Micah testifies in this chapter against their injustice and warns them of God's coming judgment against them. But, but, but even in this chapter, and here's the really amazing thing, even in this chapter, this judgment, it's not the final word. God follows the warning of judgment with a promise of preservation for his faithful remnant. And from that we learn that God's judgment has a definite aim. Unlike us and our sinful anger, God doesn't come against people, even sinful people, in judgment merely to exact revenge or to release up pent-up emotional anger or even to frighten people with his power. No, his purpose in judgment is to preserve his people, to preserve them, to preserve us from danger, to preserve them, to, pres to preserve us from the, 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 the negative consequences of sinful actions committed against us, to preserve us from walking away from his very good promises and ceasing to believe them, to preserve us from our own waywardness and our own injustice committed against our neighbors, to preserve us ultimately for himself. 
And so even as we hear this warning of judgment, we've got to remember its ultimate purpose, that we would be reconciled to our heavenly Father. Cameron already said it last week. The great theme of Micah is that judgment and repentance go hand in hand. They go together. We've got to see it, or we're going to miss something really big that the Spirit means to teach us. And because that's true, God's judgment has a definite aim, that we would be preserved for him against the consequences, the so often rotten consequences of our own injustice committed against each other that we'd be people who rely instead upon his preserving grace. So as we see that, though, we've, we've got to take a hard look, a clear-eyed look at the warnings of judgment that Micah gives us in, these chapter, in this chapter, in these verses. So first of all, in verses 1 through 5, we have a judgment against the greedy. Now, in, in these verses particularly, we have a description of huge injustice. It's, it's very sobering. In fact, the injustice is so great that Micah begins his prophecy with a funeral lament, essentially. Woe, woe, pronounced against the rich and the powerful, who have so flagrantly abused their position and set themselves against God and against his people. Woe, it's typically a word that's it's reserved for people who are mourning the loss of a loved one. And so what, God, what Micah is essentially saying is the rich and the powerful, from God's perspective, are as good as dead. Now, now what have they done to, to deserve that. Well, to start, they, they scheme and they devise evil plans while laying on their beds at night. The, the imagery here is biblically, it's evocative. Because in biblical terms, one's bed is the place where one goes to think about the stuff that he wants to think about when he doesn't have anything else to think about. You know, what do you think about when you've got nothing else to think about? What's the whir of your mind when you're in neutral? Well, for these folks... It was scheming and devising evil against their neighbors. They go out during the day, and they see all sorts of stuff, stuff they start to covet. Oh, I want that. Oh, man, the times are so uncertain. If I just had this piece of property, then I could plant some good crops here, make a profit. Then I could you know, make sure that my family and my own, we were, we were safe. They see all the stuff that they need in a fearful and uncertain world. And then they go home, and they spend all night on their beds scheming. How am I going to get it? How am I going to get it? They think to themselves, how can we get the things that we most need? And they spend all night, so they're restless in their scheming. What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? I heard one pastor in seminary, he said that that's a question he used when he was interviewing people for the staff. And it got so predictable, people started to warn them as they were coming in, for the, he's going to ask you this question. What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? But it's a probing question, right? If we could hear the whir of your mind when you're in neutral, what are you thinking about? The blessed trinity, the mission of God, the gospel, or how do I get the things that I need to make sure I'm secure in an uncertain world? That's what they thought about. It's going to be a great test of our spiritual maturity. The rich and the powerful of Micah's day scheme in their beds how they will take the fields and the houses that they covet. Now, that's evil in and of itself, but we get a sense of just how evil, just how wicked and evil it was when we remember that in an agricultural economy like existed in Judah and Israel at the time, one's land was his livelihood. To take that away was a sentence of certain economic ruin and probably death. And, and, so, and, and more than that, to be deprived of one's fields and lands in the land that God had given his people and said, this is your inheritance forever, was also to, to, to stand and hold one's, fit, one's fist up in the face of God himself 
as if to say, your ancestral heritage, if you've given to your people, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter in comparison to the problems I've got going on. So I'm going to take what, people, what you've given to, to families. God had definite rules about this stuff. He said, you can't just willy-nilly give away and sell property. You've got to keep it in the families and the tribes that have given it to you because that's a testament to the world about my goodness and my faithfulness to my people. And so not only were they stealing lands from other people without any regard to what this did to them, but they were also holding their fist up to the Lord God himself and saying, your promises, they don't mean anything in a world that's so uncertain as ours. We gotta take matters into our own hands. So God's law, if it stood in the way of their economic gain, it had to go. And the rich and the powerful appear not to care about any of this. They're, they're ruthless. We see a few verses down in verses eight and nine that they send out their henchmen to grab the coats off the backs of people going down the street. These are probably debtors who owe them money. And in the law, God had actually laid down very explicit rules about this. He said, if, if you have a, credit, a creditor and he takes out as collateral on his loan, his own coat, you've got to be sure that you return that coat to him before the night falls so that at least he has something to sleep in. And they said, nah, we're old. we'll send out our henchmen and we'll grab their coats right off their back. Do you see even in that how relentlessly relational and other-centered God's law is? It's incredible. I was talking a couple of weeks ago with a friend about the larger catechism, as you do, and, <laughs> and, and, and we, were th- we were talking about how the, it's commentary on the Eighth Commandment and just how every time I read it, it, just, it reminds me of my own uh, failures in this regard and, and how I need to repent, but how it describes, here's, here's how you know you're keeping the Eighth Commandment. Here's how you know that you're not stealing from others, that the first thought you have when you wake up in the morning is, how can I, how can I make my neighbors rich? <laughs> I, man, I don't think I've ever had that thought the first thing in the morning, you know? But, 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 but and, and we might say, oh, well, they're just a bunch of stuffy Puritans. Like, what do they know? But, but they were getting that from Micah chapter two. That's one of the proof texts they have for that. And do you see, so do you see how relentlessly other-centered, Jesus constantly confronted this with, with the Pharisees, right? Because the Pharisees had all these laws, and they thought by, by their external obedience, they, they would make themselves righteous before God, and, and they could probably say, well, you know, all of life is ethical, right? That, that was the phrase of, of a theological movement not very long ago, in the past 50 years. All of life is ethical. And Jesus was like, don't you get it? Don't you get it? Yeah, life is ethical, because more fundamentally, life is relational. But you're made for God. And because you're made for God, you're made to bless other people. And in my law, you, you ought to see that. The, the, the way that you keep it is that you're, you're other-centered. That, that if you're thinking, how do, I keep, how do I keep God's law so I can get my own, so I can secure myself, you, you've already missed it. And, and that was the challenge in Micah's day too. That's not how the wicked people of Micah's day were. So instead, they threw widows out of their houses. They foreclosed on the inheritance of the fatherless children in absolute contradiction to God's explicit commandment to them, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. And if you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. And he did. And so now he comes with a warning of judgment against this wicked and foolish people. And notice that there's no mention in Micah's testimony against these practices, or about these practices, about whether they're strictly contractual or not, no mention about the civil procedure or the laws on the books at the time. I mean, perhaps the wicked people of Micah's day could have said, well, hey, you know, this is just the accepted practice. This is what everybody does. You know, we're merely taking advantage of our rights by the law. You know, and if these people can't pay their debts, you know, they shouldn't take out their loan in the first place. But God doesn't have any of it. 
They're in a position of leadership and influence. He's blessed them to be a blessing to others. They've been given power and wealth by God's hand, and they therefore have a corresponding responsibility not to use their power to get their own, but to care for the least of these. Their obligation is not to enforce their own rights in a dog-eat-dog world, but to seek the good of their neighbor, even if it costs them something. And because they've not done this, but have instead grabbed whatever their hearts coveted, God is going to come against them in judgment. And what's more, the Hebrew is very evocative here. What's more, God's judgment is going to fit the crime. They've schemed evil in their beds, so God has a counterplan against them. They've deprived their neighbors of their lands. Well, God's going to take their land away from them. They've thrown widows out of their homes, so God will throw the wicked out of their homes. They've walked down the streets with a proud and haughty air. Yeah, look at me, I'm somebody. But God will bring such disaster upon them that others will soon sing taunting songs at them. It's very sobering. Here's how Leslie Allen sums it up. He says, The oracle is a powerful display of moral indignation. Micah takes an uncompromising stand as a champion of civil rights. Uncowed by those who now hold the whip hand, he declares the word of God against injustice and oppression in the community. Yet it is no role of his to be an active revolutionary. He confidently looks ahead to a great reversal of circumstances, to be set in motion by God himself. His conviction that history is the moral workshop of Yahweh comes to the fore again. It's a sobering warning of judgment. But until we get to the, the great promise of preservation, there's, there's yet another warning of judgment. This is in verses 6 through 11. This is the judgment of the lying preachers. Astonishingly, one of the reasons the wicked people of Micah's day can't hear Micah's prophecy against them with repentant hearts is that they're buttressed in their evil by lying preachers and false prophets who tell them exactly what they want to hear. They say, God's not going to judge this nation. Are you kidding me? We're his special people, the beneficiaries of his grace. God's character is steadfast after all. We know this. And he always does good to his people. And this message, this message just seems so right and so biblical that the rich and the powerful never once stop to consider whether or not they might actually be under the wrath of God. And yet they are. Despite God's wonderful works towards them, they are without sense. They've been cultivated by his grace, but they brought forth only bitter and poisonous fruit. In fact, Micah says, though they call themselves God's people, they've made themselves God's enemies. We see that in verse 8. And that's a sobering warning. We need to hear it. There are many voices in our day with the message for our nation and our culture, even for the people of the church. And I would venture to say that many, maybe even most of those voices, that at least that we hear in our circles, claim to speak God's truth. How many political slash cultural commentators uh, these days, on, on both sides of the political spectrum, no matter where you land on that, claim, how many of them claim to be Christians? Many of them do. What is their message? If it's not that we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus so that we need not fear, if it's not that we've been richly blessed so that we can be a blessing to others, if it's not that we should not look first and foremost to our own rights and interests, but to the rights and interests of others, if it's not that our allegiance is not ultimately to any political ideology, no matter how closely we may judge it to be to God's truth, but to our King Jesus, come what may, 
If it's not that we will suffer if we seek to do good in Jesus' name, we will suffer if we seek to do good in Jesus' name, but the Bible doesn't tell us for one moment that we're to try to escape it or to mitigate it, but to trust in his grace, that it will be sufficient for us to see us through. If it's not that we, as, a, as, as God's people, have been called to join him in, in his work to, to be uh, uh, salt and light, to be alive for the life of the world, if it's not these things, then we are being deceived. However moral and strict serious our would-be worldview shapers may claim to be. Now, you may say, well, wait a second, does that make just everything relative? No, not for one moment. But we ought to stand on, on the, the truth of what God's word teaches about what is most objectively real, and that is faith, hope, and love. It's amazing. I've got to be careful, lest I start preaching another sermon. But, but <laughs> in 1 Corinthians, it's amazing how Paul defends his ministry against the false teachers in, in his day who were saying, okay, you know, you know, to the Corinthians especially, all right, Paul, you know, the, 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 the message of the apostles, that might be great to get started in the Christian life, but you actually need some more oomph. You, know, like you need real power to, to, to get going, and so you ought to listen to us. And, and, and it's amazing how Paul responds to that. He says, you know, you, or at least you ought to know, the truth of the apostolic message by our love. That, that's incredible. How, how many, I've never once heard uh, and it's, it probably hasn't even come from my mouth very much. I've never once heard someone you know, with a podcast or you know, some television show on the internet or, you know, or whatever uh, who, who claims to speak God's truth or just the truth that we need to hear in our culture for our time. I've never once heard them say, hey, hey the vindication for the truth of what I'm saying is in my love. Like, you know the truth of what I'm saying. You know that how it's sincere. You know this is really a message from the Lord for you and for our times because of the way it's working out in love for other people. I've never heard that. And I'm not saying that, therefore, we just toss everything aside, nothing, no, not for one moment. I am saying we need to fix our gaze on what's most important. Otherwise, we're going to miss what the Spirit is, it means to teach us. God's judgment comes against us not to, to cast us aside, not to condemn us, not to make everything relative, but that we would stand like a rock on a rock on what matters most in the world, that we would stand on what the Lord has taught us about what is objectively true, that we would stand as people who have been called into his mission, that we would stand as people who most embody faith, hope, and especially love. So a question for us this Advent season, what have been the dominant messages of the things you have invested the most of your time listening to over the past year? And how have those dominant messages helped your ability to be free of anxiety and a covetous heart. It's not a new thought. We've wrestled with this probably all of our lives. The holidays, as blessed as they can be, as exciting as they can be, often bring with them additional burdens of anxiety, of worry, of covetousness, family dynamics. There's just a lot going on. And how are we being shaped as God's people in the whole of the year so that when we come into this time to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Lord himself coming to dwell with us, how are we being helped to counteract those tendencies by the things we hear, by where we invest the most of our time? Are we being shaped as God's people to love by the things we invest our time listening to? This is something we continue to struggle with as God's people, and we will continue to struggle with it all throughout the rest of our lives. It's, it's in one sense, just simply to describe the task of sanctification. But we need to be clear-eyed about it. Materialism is still very much an idol of our times. Now, now, don't get me wrong. One of the great strengths, I think, and I, I certainly the elders and, and the leadership would echo this, one of the great strengths of Christ Community Church is our generosity. And, and we praise God for that. I, I think that's just 
But what a testament to the Spirit's work in our midst. We've been a generous congregation. We really have. We've blessed many missionaries and families in need. We've been blessing to each other. Uh, it's just, as I say, a testament to the Spirit's work in our midst. But, but we can still learn from these sobering warnings in Micah 2. We've got to be on our guard against the currents of our culture, even at times the currents of evangelical culture, which lay so much stress upon our rights as Americans or our rights as consumers or the way we, we, we think we ought to think as, as steely-eyed capitalists or, or whatever, but which, which have the dangerous potential to, to rot away generosity from our hearts. We should beware, lest claiming the mantle of God's people, we embrace ways of thinking and, and speaking and especially doing that, that treat the least of these as though they don't matter. With indifference or even at times derision. And if, if we do that, whatever else we may say, we will show that we are not acting as God's people as he, as he means to, to, for us to act in the world. So these are sobering warnings and we ought to pay attention to them. But in verses 12 and 13, we have an amazing reversal of fortunes, so to speak. Why does God bring judgment? That's the question that's implicitly answered in these final two verses. Now, some commentators, like Calvin and Luther, no, you know, guys who really knew their stuff, some commentators were so perplexed by the sudden and abrupt change from the warnings of judgment in all the way, in the first two thirds of this chapter, to this promise of preservation, they thought, well, it can't really be talking about deliverance. It can't really be talking about redemption after all. It must be that what God is saying is uh, the judgment is going to be so terrible and so great that, that even I'm going to use language like pre preservation. Really what I'm doing is I'm preserving you for judgment. You're, you're scattered everywhere. I'm going to bring you together so that my wrath really falls square on your heads. They thought that must be what he's talking about because the, the change is just so abrupt. You know, he goes, he's talking about preachers who are so bad for the people that if they go around telling you, hey, you should get drunk, you know, that would be the kind of preacher that you would listen to. And then suddenly, on a dime, but I'm going to preserve you. They were just so perplexed. That's such a strange and abrupt change. And they couldn't get over it. But I don't think they were quite right. I think rather that we see here a beautiful declaration of the purpose and the aim of God's judgment against evil, even the evil of his own people, and that is he aims to preserve them for himself. See, it, it, even in the way that God describes his preservation, the consequence of the coming judgment will be that they are scattered like sheep without a shepherd, but God will gather them. The consequence of judgment will be that they are surrounded on every side by enemies, but he will make a breach through the enemy forces and lead his people out like a king at the head of an army. You know, the, the false prophets and preachers of Micah's day, they got it half right, but ultimately that was their undoing. God is merciful and gracious. His character doesn't change. He will always be faithful to his promises, and because that's true, he sends his judgment to preserve his people from his wrath against sin. His judgment always sets things right. It preserves the outcast and the downtrodden. It lifts up the people who've been downtrodden by injustice. His judgment leads his people back to them. It preserves his people from going down the path of their own injustice, from the path of rebellion against them. And, and you know, the greatest and the highest illustration of this fact is that the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the judgment that rightly falls upon our sin and so to preserve us as a people for himself, by giving us new life in him. In the cross, we see that God's judgment is not an end in and of itself, but fundamentally serves the purpose of preserving us for himself. 
And in Jesus, what's more, we have a Savior who not only preserves us for himself, but came down to live as one of us, who took upon himself our human flesh, who suffered the indignities of injustice committed against him, who bore our sicknesses and diseases, who suffered temptations and disappointments and all the cruelties of sinners against him and who triumphed over all these things by bearing the judgment that rightly falls upon that wickedness and being raised to new life by his Father so that now all of us who put our faith in him share in the judgment that he, in, in the judgment that he bore and in the victory that he won over all our sin and over all this injustice so that now we share in all that new life that he came to give us. And this fact that we have a Savior who, 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 who became one of us so that we may be preserved through judgment for him, that's the story of Advent. So it's fitting that we should have in this chapter such a clear reminder that God's judgment is mercifully designed to preserve us, his people. Here's how John McKay puts it. He says, the picture in these verses is not that of a liberator who comes from outside to release those who are confined within some prison. The movement both of the liberator and the liberated in verse 13 is from within outwards. Not only is freedom provided for them by another, but it is by one who has been with them, who has identified with them, who has shared in their lot. Brothers and sisters, may we rejoice in that this Advent season. May, may this truth be the thing that steals us against the worries of economic uncertainty, that steals us against the anxieties that we sometimes feel in this season, that steals us so that we can be a blessing to our neighbors, that we can be a blessing to our friends and our families, that steals us against the worry and covetousness that so often creeps into our hearts, that we have a Savior not only who, who overcame sin and death for his people, but did it by becoming one of us. I was talking to one of the men's group earlier this week, and we were just meditating over the fact that we have a high priest who intercedes every day for us and who intercedes as one who became one of us. You're worried about economic uncertainty? Did you know you have a Savior right now who's interceding for you personally who felt that? Because he lived a human life, and he had a job, and sometimes that job didn't pay like he thought it was going to pay. He, know, he knows what that's like. Have you ever experienced disappointment in your relationships? You, know, you, you right now have a Savior who's interceding for you who knows what that's like. Because fundamentally, at the, at the hour of his greatest need when he was betrayed, all of his friends ran away and left him, as if all the three years of his unceasing labor on their behalf didn't mean anything. You ever been disappointed in relationships? He knows what that's like. You ever, you ever suffered the, the pangs of temptation that you would covet something that didn't belong to you? He knows what that's like. He didn't give in to it, but he knows what it's like. You have a Savior who became you, who took on your flesh, so that now he intercedes for you as someone who's not distant, who's not unfamiliar with what it's like to live in this world, but who knows it and who overcame it and shares in a victory for you and intercedes so that he can plot, the Spirit will apply it to you in your very moment of need. And that's the story of Advent. So may we hear these sobering warnings of judgment as they really are meant to be for us, as reminders that this is not the way that God wants us to live. This is not the way that he designed us to be. This is not the way he wants us to treat our friends and neighbors, or at least the members of our society. And if we do, we have a Savior who preserves us through judgment so we run back to him, we'd experience the fullness of his mercy and his grace and live in that power. So what does Micah 2, 1 through 13 teach us? Fundamentally this, God's judgment is mercifully designed to preserve his people. 
And what a good thing it is for us then that we can come now to the Lord's table, having heard this message, and be reminded once again that in the story of Advent, we have a Savior who came down to live among us. And not only does he intercede for us at this very moment in all the ways that we most need, but he's given us himself. How, how, how is the message of Micah 2 really going to deal with, with the covetousness, covetousness that exists in my heart? How, how do I take what I've just heard and apply it to my life? How is it really going to make an impact in the ways that I most need it to make an impact this week, maybe even this Thursday at Thanksgiving? The answer is Jesus is going to give me himself. My whole problem is that oftentimes the gospel just doesn't seem very real in comparison to the things that are, are about me in the world, to com- in comparison to the things that tempt me to be anxious, the things that you know I, I'm just facing, whether it's in relationships or just in my own heart or out there in the world, the gospel just doesn't seem like, yeah, that's a nice story, I guess, but like, how, how does it really make a difference? And my whole problem is that Jesus doesn't seem real to me. And Jesus knows what that's like. And that's why on the night that he was betrayed, he said, do this. He broke bread and he said, this is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is the new covenant, the new covenant of life to the full. It's, it's a new covenant that's secured by my blood, which is poured out for you. Drink of it, all of you. And the reason that he did these things is, so, is because he knows that oftentimes it just doesn't seem real enough to us. And to make it real, to, to help us to see that it's not just a bare word, it's a living reality, he gives us himself. And so that's why we invite all those who put their trust in Jesus, who can understand that truth, to come and to partake they would eat Jesus, they would drink his blood, that they would know it's a reality for you. He lives to intercede for you even now so that the warnings of judgment don't just become ends in and of themselves, but work, work to preserve you for himself. So may, as you, as you take these elements, may that truth be something you meditate on, that you have in your hands Jesus, Jesus himself, that he's given you himself so that you'd be, and you'd be strengthened You'd be strengthened with the power that you most need to apply what you hear to the vicissitudes and, and all the ways in which life most changes, that you would have the reality that he intercedes for you in the moment of need. So I'm going to pray, and, and a few instructions for us so that we don't get all confused. So those on this side of the room, you're going to go to the table in the back. So those in the very back row, you're going to go first. You're going to exit on that, that uh, side, that hallway there, go to the table, and then come back through this main uh, row right here. Those on this side, you're going to come to the front of the table. And you're going to go from the front uh, row first, come over here, and then uh, uh, you're, going to, you're going to come out this side, sorry, and go down uh, this way. Hopefully that's not confusing. <laughs> and we're going, to, we're going to take these elements, we're going to stand with them, and we'll take them together. But let me pray for us that the Spirit would do this work for us on our behalf, that he would take these elements and make them really spiritually beneficial to our souls, and then we'll come. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you that your word of judgment against us is not a bare word of judgment against us, that you use it to preserve us for, yourself, for, preserve us for yourself. And Lord, we know that this is true most fundamentally because you've given us Jesus Christ. And so now, Lord, as we prepare to partake of this meal, may it really bear spiritual fruit in our lives that we would remember, and not just remember, but really possess Jesus, that his intercession for us would mean something for us this very week, that we would overcome the worry and the anxiety that so often leads to injustice and instead live totally for him. We ask it in his mighty name. Amen.